Last Sunday, we began our exploration of Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20, and really the topic of church discipline. Now, to be honest, I've been looking forward to teaching on these verses for quite some time, not because I enjoy talking about exposing and convicting people of their sins, not because I'm excited to see people put in a position of having to confront their sinning brothers and sisters, rather the reason I've been looking forward to Matthew 18 is because it provides us with tools for reconciliation and restoration. And these tools, if we use them correctly, will ultimately help our church to foster a greater love for each other and a stronger unity. Church discipline, frankly, makes churches healthier because sins are dealt with biblically. Repentance is enacted genuinely. Forgiveness is offered freely. Reconciliation is accomplished sweetly. And restoration is achieved joyfully. Understanding and applying the Lord's method of church discipline will ultimately make for a healthier Harvest Bible Church. And frankly, this is the the desire of every single pastor. Why? Well, because it's the Lord's desire. The pastoral desire, in fact, an example of this comes to us in one of Paul's letters to the Philippians. Throughout his entire letter, he's been urging the church to live in peace and live in humility. But then in chapter 4 of his letter to the Philippians, he mentions two sisters in Christ who are quarreling with each other. And he actually names them in his letter. How would you like to have your name printed in the Bible and read over and over again for 20 centuries? These two women, Euodia and Syntyche, are fighting with each other. And he's already urged them to live in harmony in the Lord, but now he actually calls in a mediator to help them in their dispute. Now, he doesn't name the name of the mediator, but he says this, indeed, true comrade, he's talking about the mediator, true comrade, I ask you to help these women who have shared in my struggle in the cause of the gospel. Notice he doesn't blast them. He doesn't slander them. Instead, he insists that reconciliation be worked out between those two sisters through the help of a third-party mediator. Why? Well, because Paul's heart is for peace and for reconciliation. He brings their name before the entire church publicly with the help of a mediator because he wants them reconciled. That's the heart of our Lord as well in Matthew chapter 18. So if you haven't already turned there, turn to Matthew chapter 18 in your copy of Scripture. Now, none of the verses of Matthew chapter 18 are isolated. They all belong together in a context. Furthermore, the verses, they build on each other and they give us the heart of Christ for rescuing and restoring his lost sheep. At the moment when the disciples are concerned about which one of them is the greatest in the kingdom, Jesus then takes a child to himself as an illustration, puts the child on his lap, puts him in his arms, and says, Truly I say to you, unless you become converted like this child, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And not just childlike faith, but also childlike humility. The Lord intends to protect his children. In fact, in verse 6, he pronounces judgment on anybody who would cause any of his children, his little ones, to stumble into sin. And even more than that, even uh, warns against despising other believers in your own heart, verse 10. And so not only are we not allowed to cause other people in the church to stumble, the Lord tells us we're not even to have malice and, and bitterness against them in our own hearts. We're not to look down our nose at anybody in the church. What happens, however, 
when believers do fall into sin? What happens if they do wander away and get lost? Well, he says in verse 11, for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. And so the Lord God intends to rescue believers who have fallen away into sin. He intends to save them. We read in verse 14, So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. The Lord will rescue every single lost sheep. It is in His will to do so. But the question is, well, how does the Lord rescue believers who have strayed off into sinfulness? The answer, He sends other believers after them to do so. However, it is not a free-for-all. We can't just do whatever we want to do. There are rules. The Lord desires that we should seek to rescue His sheep in His way. And so what follows in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17 are Jesus' steps for rescuing lost and straying sheep. And so look at these with me here. Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them... Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. We noted last time, last Sunday, that there are a series of steps. We noticed that there are steps in these verses that we are to follow in order to win back a a sinning brother. And the implication is a sister as well. Brother is a generalized term, but brother or sister in the faith. But the initial step we noted also uh, is not just... um, It's not explicit here in verse 15, but the first step, the preemptive step, is that of self-discipline. Before we get to church discipline, we have to go to self-discipline. And Jesus warns about that in verses 8 and 9. He says to the disciples, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, and the implication is stumble into sin, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. Then he gives another illustration. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be cast into the fiery hell. Now again, every time we talk about these verses, I have to remind you these are not to be taken literally. If people come in and they're missing limbs and having eyes out of their heads, I don't want to see that. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Rather, he's using these phrases as illustrations to articulate the seriousness of of our own warfare against our own sinful nature and our sinful impulses. You should be so angry and militant at your own pride and arrogance and self-centeredness that when you go to deal with it, it feels like you're pulling out eyes and cutting off arms. Your deal with sexual temptation and lust should be severe like pulling out organs of your body, hands and feet. That's the seriousness of our warfare against our sin. And yet, he says, if we are caught in those sins, and we can't seem to pull ourselves out of it through self-discipline, through repentance, through faith, if we can't do it by ourselves, the Lord tells the body of Christ to take initiative and intervene. And the first proactive step involves rescuing straying sheep by ourselves. Verse 15 again, here's step one, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. 
If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Now, we talked about this more extensively last week, last Sunday, but we noted this is not Jesus' method for dealing with unbelievers in their sin. The whole world sins against God. This is not about unbelievers. This is about brothers and sisters in Christ, Christians, those who belong in this assembly. And I would even add this is not a universal principle. I have no right to go to Bangladesh and call out sins of a person over there. This is all in the context of this local church. This is why membership is so important, which we're going to talk about in a couple weeks. But here is a brother or a sister in Christ who have sinned and need to be corrected. And so if your brother sins, whether it's against you individually or in general, he says, go and show him his fault in private. Now, we would talk about this last week, and we will add again today, that if this is offense, an offense of a personal nature, and if this is against you, and it can be overlooked, Scripture says it's actually better. If, there, if there's a minor offense that you could overlook, 1 Peter 4, 8, love covers a multitude of sins. And so if it's possible, say they say something to you that's just not kind and it hurts you when they've sinned against you with their words, now you have the opportunity there. You can, even though they've given offense, you don't have to take offense. You can say, you know what? They said that in anger. I know they didn't mean it. I know their heart better than that. And I'm, I'm just not going to bring it up. I'm going to let it go. Because nine times out of ten, they're going to come back to you and say, you know what, I, I'm really sorry I said that. And you can say, it's forgiven, it's all right. And you move on. If you can do that, it's certainly better. Don't make a mountain out of a molehill. Again, these are for minor offenses. I'm not talking about egregious sins. I'm talking about interpersonal things that we do to hurt each other, sometimes without even realizing it, or in a moment of anger. Now, all sin is sin to God. All of our sins are an offense to Him but we are not commanded to constantly be going around finding fault in other people because if we were to do that, if we were to go after other believers and follow all the steps of church discipline to the very last letter, every single time somebody sins, that's all we'd ever do. We would get nothing else done because guess what? We all sin. And most likely we're all sinning every single day. Certainly, if not by deed or by word, certainly in thought and in heart before the Lord. And so we're not going on some kind of a sin-seeking you know, warfare against all sins of all people all the time. However, if the sin is worthy enough to be confronted, there are times that it must be confronted. That's what Jesus is talking about. And not just serious sins, but also indwelling sins and enslaving sins. When your brother or sister is caught in a trespass or a sin that you are watching them being destroyed by, you can't just sit on your hands and say, well, not my problem. It is your problem because we're members of one another. And we see these sins that are going to ruin other people and you see them caught in this thing and the Lord says, go and show them his fault in private. How should you go to them? We spent more time on this last week, but we noted that we ourselves ought to go to other believers, number one, humbly. We should humble ourselves before them, not go to them in pride and say, well, let me tell you something. We go to them in humility. We go to them repentantly and not as hypocrites. We go to them prayerfully. We ask the Lord, please help me, Lord, to confront my brother or sister. I don't want to sin against them when I go. Lord, please convict me of my sin. We go prayerfully, and we also go lovingly. We go lovingly to our brothers and sisters in the faith. We're meant to embody the spirit of Galatians 6, 1 and 2. The Bible says, brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. 
gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you will not be tempted. Don't stick a log in your own eye. He says in verse 2, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. So that's how we are to go to our brothers and sisters in the faith who are caught in a sin. It's important, my friends, that our hearts are right before we confront somebody else in their sin. And so when we go, we are to do so in the right heart. But Jesus also adds to that that we are to do so privately, privately. There's an excellent book, and we're going to try to get some copies for the back table there, but there's an excellent book by Ken Sandy called The Peacemaker. The Peacemaker. It's a fantastic book on reconciliation. In fact, I don't know if there's a book outside the Bible I've read that it's been more helpful to me in understanding this principle, but Ken Sandy in his book, he notes this. The general principle taught in Matthew 18 is that we should try to keep the circle of people involved in a conflict as small as possible for as long as possible. That's very wise, and I think it's a right application of this verse here. It makes the possibility of repentance more likely as it becomes easier for them, and that's the goal. We want repentance and reconciliation to be as easy as possible, not because we don't value the egregious nature of sin, but because we love each other, and I want you to repent. I want you to be forgiven, find forgiveness in God, and be restored as quickly and as easily as possible. We don't want to go to war and have a person have their face ground into the dirt every single time. We're not out to destroy each other. I want to see people restored and get back to ministry, get back to life, get back to growing in godliness. And so doing this in private will help. And if we go after people uh, and we bring a lot of people into the matter, we blast them publicly, it makes it so much more difficult. The person is going to tend to feel overexposed or even humiliated rather than feeling repentant over a genuine sin. I I gave the illustration last week. If a person is caught in sin and say they've never been confronted before about it, they have no idea that's even a problem, and I pick on them and I bring them up here and I blast them and all you blast them, they're not even even thinking about the sin. They're thinking about, I just got wrecked. And guess what? We will never see them back at this church ever again. Now, we would never do that. But I'll tell you, the temptation is to jump and skip steps and do it the wrong way for all kinds of reasons. And he says here, Jesus says, if he listens to you, if you go to him privately and he listens to you, you have won your brother. You've won him over. In other words, they've, they've heeded your calls for repentance. They've turned away from their sin. They've turned back to the Lord. And that's what we want. We've won them over, back to the Lord, back to the fellowship, and we move on. James 5, verses 19 and 20, my brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Again, the goal is not to judge each other harshly. That's not the goal. The goal is not to blast each other and destroy each other or even humiliate them or enact vengeance on them. That's a very fleshly thing that we could be getting into, right? Somebody hurts us, and we say, that's not right. That's not just. And so I I have an idea. I'll bring them into church discipline, and I'll I'll, I'll get my, my judgment that way. And you make them feel that sin until they can't stand. That's wrong. That's wrong. But how do we know it's wrong? Well, the Bible says it's wrong. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Romans 12 talks about actually pouring kindness and tenderness and love on that person. He says when you you do that, it's like pouring hot coals on their head. They can't stand it because they're the one caught in sin. 
But he says, don't ever seek your own revenge, beloved. Don't, don't revenge, get revenge. Don't do that. But rather, you want to win them over. You want to restore them. But what happens if they don't listen? What happens if they don't repent? Verse 16. This is where we're going to spend the rest of our time today. Verse 16. If he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Now, nothing has been said so far about how long we are to stay in step one. And when you read Matthew 18, especially these three verses, there's no time limit given for anything. And I think that's really helpful and actually really valuable. Uh, Because there are times when maybe you've confronted a person, you've gone to them in grace and in kindness, and they're committed to working things through with you, and it might take a long time. It might take several meetings. It might take a while for you to get together and talk and pray and hash it out, and they might say, listen, I I know you're coming to me and you're telling me about my sins, but I I just don't see it, but I don't want to fight with you. I just, I want to understand what you're saying. Let's meet again next week and we'll talk more about it, or let's, you know, let's, let's do a Bible study and I, you know. It could take time. So I would say if you go to a person and they're at least willing to hear you out, but maybe they haven't responded in the way that you're hoping for in the first meeting, don't rush it. If they're willing to work with you, work with them. Be gracious to them. Because I'll tell you, the time's going to come when you're going to want them to be gracious to you. So as long as you're working toward reconciliation and there's a possibility of repentance, then you don't need to involve anybody else. You can just keep on working together prayerfully, hopefully. But if you reach a point when reconciliation is stalled altogether and you're sinning brother or sister, they just don't listen to you anymore, now you are to progress to the next step. Because if the sin is serious enough for you to bring it to their mind right now and to confront them, you really can't walk away. You can't, you can't be like, look, brother, sister, I've been praying about this for weeks and I'm going to bring this to you. And they said, yeah, I'm all set. You're not just going to be like, well, I guess then we're going we're gonna to be good. We'll just walk away because they're still caught in the trespass. And not only that, but now you're implicated because you've been praying about it and the Lord, you're the one. So it's on you at this point to, to see it through and to keep on working with your brother or sister. Why? Because you love them. You love them. And you want to see them released from this. After all, the goal is to rescue them from the behavior and to bring them to repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation. And so, if your brother does not listen to you, Jesus instructs, take one or two more with you. Now, you're opening up the circle at this point to people who are going to be in the know. And I know what the, you know what I mean when I say in the know. Now they're going to be privy to all this information. But notice here, this is not the time to go public. You don't go from private to public overnight. You are to be cautious in how you proceed, in how you select those that you're going to take with you. Leon Morris, a New Testament scholar, notes that this phrase, one or two more, it may not actually be an exact number. It could be a a Jewish idiom for a, a small, intimate group. It could refer to just a few more people. That could be the sense of it. But now, again, the the point is you're going to be tasked with bringing a, a small, intimate group into this knowledge now. And so I want to speak about what it is to go and get those intimate people to come with you to confront this sin. First, I want to talk about negatively what not to do, what not to do. This verse is not permission to go and gossip about people to other people. 
All right, that is never, ever going to be the solution to bring all that person's dirt to other people and just blast them to other people. And the question always comes up, because I get asked this all the time, well, what is gossip? What is gossip? Well, again, my friend Ken Sandy offers this helpful definition. Gossip means to betray a confidence or to discuss unfavorable personal facts about another person with someone who is not part of the problem or its solution. I want to read that again. Gossip means to betray a confidence or to discuss unfavorable personal facts about another person with someone who is not part of the solu- a problem or with a solution. And coupled with gossip is slander. Slander involves speaking false and malicious words about another person. So again, gossip, you're just sharing bad stuff with other people. Gossip is the heart behind it. Gossip or slander means that you're sharing this information because you want to tear them down. Both things are wrong. Both of these sins are cancerous to churches, absolutely destructive to churches. And these are what we call respectable sins. This isn't like committing adultery. This isn't like murder. These aren't like the big ones that people notice a mile away and say, oh, that's sin. This is the insidious stuff that creeps into our assemblies and creeps into our relationships and absolutely rots us to the core from the inside out. Nothing destroys unity and trust faster than gossip, which is why Scripture so vehemently speaks against it. This isn't just a one-off random thing. Romans 1.29, 2 Corinthians 12.20, 2 Timothy 3.3, all of these verses categorize gossip not as a minor offense, but as a sin that is punishable in the judgment. Proverbs 16.28 warns that a perverse man digs up evil and a slanderer separates intimate friends. You will be slandered and destroyed, and it will break up your friendships. This is why Proverbs 20.19 warns us, warns us, he who goes about as a slanderer reveals secrets, therefore do not associate with a gossip. Don't associate with a person who is a gossip. Now, all of these sins do not discriminate. All people are at risk of either willingly hearing gossip, and I'm going to say willingly because sometimes you hear something you don't want to hear. Why are you telling me this? That's different than a person who willingly wants to hear. Well, I want to share something. Oh, I'm all ears. Let me know. That's very different. A person who willingly hears gossip and a person who repeats gossip. It's the same sin. However, even though this sin is not discriminating to any person, all people can be caught in this trespass. Three times, however, in the New Testament, Paul issues a strong warning to women to not be gossips. 1 Timothy 3.11 and Titus 2.3 warn women from becoming malicious gossips. The root of malicious is diabolos. It's diabolical or wicked or slanderous. For women not to become malicious gossips. While 1 Timothy 5.13 admonishes women who learn to be idle as they go around from house to house, not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies talking about things not proper to mention. My friends, the Lord is deadly serious about this sin, and we should be too, because the heart of gossip and slander is pride and malice against Christ's little ones. Under no circumstances are Christians allowed to gossip or tear down other believers, even if that believer is in sin. And I will commit to you 
that I will have no part at all as a shepherd of this church with any level of gossip. We, we, have, to, we have to determine to root this out. Now, I'm not talking about going on a war to fight off, oh, anything, we're not going to put up posters, no gossip, no gossip. But I'm going to tell you that we just cannot let this sin infiltrate this church. Because it comes in through our hearts, it comes out of our mouths, and it destroys people. We will ruin more people if we are committed to gossip and slander. Do not do it. I'm warning you, church, do not do it. However, what are we to do positively? Positively, because again, the Lord tells us to go and bring somebody else with us to confront sinning brothers and sisters. So we do have to tell somebody, how do we do this the right way? Because there's a right way to do it. If you deem it to be necessary to involve another believer in confronting a sinning brother or sister, you must exercise great wisdom and great discernment. Be very, very careful with how you do it. And so, to whom do you go? Well, I would encourage you. You want to approach another believer who is godly? A person who is discreet? They're not known to blab everything everywhere. You want to be discreet? You want to approach a believer who is wise? who's objective, who's gracious, and who has a lot of integrity. That's who you want to help you in this matter. Godly, discreet, wise, objective, gracious, and has integrity. And what do you say to them? What do you do? How do you approach them? Jay Adams actually has some words about this. He says, to assure privacy, the name of the offender should not be revealed to a potential counselor or witness until he has agreed to participate. This is very important. You need to summarize what's going on. And this is how you you go to a person and say, look, I I need your help. I have a a brother who is in sin, and I've gone to them repeatedly, and we've talked about it, and they they just don't see it. And I I, I feel like I need to bring someone else along, and I'm coming to you because I think that you could be helpful. And they they might say, all right, well, what's the situation? If they're wise, they'll say that. They're not going to say, who is it? That's a person who wants to hear gossip. If they say, what's the situation? That's wise. Tell me about the situation. Well, here, here's how this goes. Now, they might come to you and turn around and say, well, brother, that, that's actually not, that's not sin against you at all. That's just, you don't like that person, and they have to counsel you. But they might say, okay, well, all right, that makes sense, and boy, that, that sounds really difficult. Well, let me go home and pray about this, and we'll see if, that's, if I'm the right person for this. So you summarize the circumstance, and you, here's the thing. You want to protect that person, the, the brother or sister who you want to bring along with you. You want to protect them from overexposure. You don't want them to know too much, because here's the thing. Once they know it, they're always going to know it. And you also want to protect the sinning brother or sister. You don't want their stuff to get out to everybody in the congregation. You don't want to go around to every single person. You're going to help me? You're going to help me? You, know, you don't want to do that. That's the wrong way to go about it. So you want to protect the intimacy, the closeness, the privacy for as long as possible. Again, once you know, you always know. Even if the sin doesn't actually... Say you've misjudged that person, the sinning brother or sister. Say you're accusing them of some kind of an egregious sin and you confront them and they say, I'm not doing that. Now, that, they might be telling the truth. Maybe they're not doing that, but as soon as you tell other people, even if it's not true, they're going to have it in their heads all the time, that person's guilty. Even if they're not, it's going to be lodged in their brains. And you're always going to be a little bit tentative. It's so difficult. And I'm just autobiographically, it's difficult pastorally because I, I hear things, I know things, and I have to work hard to just put it aside and just, you know what? They repented, they've moved on, and all things are forgotten. 
But I'll tell you, you know things in it, it weighs you down. And you have to be careful, really, really careful, and to continue to love people through their sins and their problems. And so if they agree, at that point, that's when you confide in them. If they say, all right, I, I think this is a big enough deal. I, I want to help you. Let's, talk, let's get together and talk and pray. Okay, who are we talking about now? At this point, that's when you tell them. And why do you tell them now? Because you plan to take them with you. The words with you are really, really important. With you. You're going to bring them with you to confront this sinning brother or sister. This is not going to somebody seeking advice to dish dirt. This is not gossip. You're filling them in completely because you want them to help you, and they're going to go and sit with you and talk to this person directly about making sure that they repent of this sin. Now, what is the purpose of taking this person with you? Because Jesus gives us an answer at the second half of verse 16. He gives us an answer. Anytime you read the words, so that, in verse 16, if he listens to you, take one or two more with you, so that, that's going to be, that's a result clause. That's pointing to something else. There's a reason for that. So Jesus actually gives us a reason. He says, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. This is a direct quote from Deuteronomy 19.15. That's a section in Deuteronomy that deals with uh, trying legal disputes in the law. Legal disputes in the law. And the purpose of any witness to any case is to ensure that the person who's being convicted of a crime is based on more than one witness and not just one potentially biased opponent. Because that's the thing. You have a bone to pick with somebody, you can go after them and you can sue them and you can bring them before the church. You can do all these different things on a vendetta. Witnesses are a way to stop those vendettas from happening. Multiple witnesses ensure a greater level of integrity in a case and they further work to corroborate the truth. It's very easy, again, for one person to lie. One person can concoct a whole story and lie about another person, but it's very difficult to get a whole group of people to perpetuate that same lie with full certainty. The full verse in Deuteronomy 19.15 reads like this. A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. So the Bible says you have to have witnesses. You have to have someone else who agrees with you on this matter. Now the question then is, well, why does Jesus cite this verse here? Again, we're not talking about a court case. It's not a legal matter. This is an issue of, this is a reconciliation meeting. This is a counseling meeting. So why does he bring in the law at this point? Why do we need witnesses? Well, there's at least three reasons here. First, the first reason is because the goal is confirming every fact. Confirming every fact. In other words, you want to verify that the charge of sinfulness is actually sin. In this way, these witnesses, they're functioning like biblical counselors. If the accuser lays out the matter and a sin has not been committed, again, the counselor can say, well, brother, that's, that's not sin. Maybe you don't like how something was, that's a preference issue. You're just mad because you don't like how they're doing things. Something about them rubs you the wrong way. Maybe, you, maybe you're the one who has a root of bitterness and needs to repent. It's not their problem, it's your problem. That's not a sin. However, if the witness that you talk to, you lay the whole case out, and they, they go to the person, they sit down with a sinning brother, and all the facts come out, they can give a ruling, yeah, brother, you're in sin. I'm sorry, I, I love to believe this is not sin, but this, this is sinful, this is awful, you've got, you got to re- repent of this. 
And so they are able to confirm the truth of the transgression. The second reason for the witness is to verify that the matter has been handled biblically. This is also important, especially if this matter ends up going to the church. If a sinning brother or sister does not repent and they have to go to the church and they have not heeded the counsel of witnesses, then the church has to at some point discern the facts of the case. To have two or three witnesses able to give testimony that, yes, the sinning brother was approached correctly, privately first, and secondly, we went to them ourselves to confirm that they were in sin and they did not listen to us. Because if a person's brought before the entire assembly and this other, these other processes weren't followed, then we're now party to our own transgression of finding fault in the person without due course. So the church at that point has to do their job. But they have to know that the matter has already been handled biblically, and the church has to know that Christ has been honored in the process. We do not want to dishonor the Lord in dealing with our own people. I think we forget that sometimes. We think this is just a free-for-all. I'm going to do my thing and you do your thing. We're just going to battle back and forth until we figure out what's going to happen. No, we don't belong to ourselves. We belong to Him. And because we belong to Him, therefore we belong to each other. But we are first and foremost His. We belong to Jesus. And so Scripture is correct when it says there is a value in the multitude of counselors. We have to help each other do this right. Again, if you're taking notes, Proverbs eleven fourteen, Proverbs fifteen twenty two, twenty four six. These are all verses about the wisdom of a multitude of counselors. It's also necessary. John eight seventeen confirms the truthfulness of a testimony of two or three witnesses. First Timothy five nineteen notes the mandate for witnesses against an elder. If an elder is caught in sin, there has to be witnesses. In other words, one person can't have a bone to pick with the pastor and say, "I'm going to go and get him out of here." There has to be witnesses before you bring a charge against an elder. However, the Bible says if they are in sin, rebuke them publicly. See, you all get the benefit of being brought to all of this privately quite a few many steps. But if a pastor or elder sins in an egregious way, we stand up here before the congregation and we are rebuked publicly. Why? The Bible says so that all may stand in fear. Sin is a serious thing but also is accusing somebody else of sin as well. It's a serious thing. We can't just throw charges of sinfulness back and forth and just lobby grenades at each other. But with a multitude of faithful witnesses, the truth can be established. And there's a third reason for taking one or two more with you to confront a sinning brother. It adds necessary pressure to convict them so that they can repent. It adds pressure See, if one person comes to you and tells you that you're in sin, if you're hardened in your heart against that person, you can just say, well, you just got a grudge against me. This is your beef, not mine. But if two or three godly, mature, wise, charitable leavers are sitting in your living room and confronting you and pleading with you, you're more likely to heed a multitude of counselors that love you. It's not just about this person who's got something against you. Now you have several in your home saying, brother, we love you. Sister, we love you. You're caught in a trespass. We want to help you get out of it. Please listen to us. It puts pressure on the person who's in sin to consider the matter and to repent. But I want to reemphasize the importance of doing this step right 
Beloved, we have to do this right. You must go to them privately first. Do not tag other people in prematurely. Don't gossip. Don't overshare with other people. Not only does it undermine the work of reconciliation that you're trying to do, but now, guess what? Now you're adding your sin into the mix along with theirs. Now you've placed a log into your own eye. And you can't even see the speck in their eye. So be very careful about doing that. Choose your counselors wisely. Make sure they're the right person. Make sure that they're godly, mature people. And let me tell you, if you choose the town gossip, you're a fool. And you're wrong. Ask permission to include them. Let the details out very slowly and very carefully. Protect your sinning brother. Protect them. It's a great burden because, again, once you know something, you'll always know it. It'll always be with you. And when you go with your one or two others, you must go with the same heart that was meant originally. Go to them humbly, repentantly, not hypocritically. Go to them with your friends prayerfully. Go with them lovingly. You're not to go and dogpile on a struggling believer. Because a lot of times that's what happens with sin. Our sin deceives us and it weakens us and it it brings us down. And the purpose of confronting a person, bringing from darkness to light, is to expose it. But I'll tell you, there are so many times when a person's sin finally comes out, even though it's a terrible feeling. When your sin is exposed, it's a terrible feeling in the moment. But then as soon as it's out, guess what happens? The burden's lifted. And I've heard people say in tears, I'm so glad someone else finally knows. And they'll thank you, thank you. I know this was hard for you to come to me, but thank you for having the courage and the love enough to confront me. I don't want to deal with this by myself anymore. I want help. And praise God when they do. Again, you're going to them because you love them and you want to follow God's process in restoring them. It's so important. This is out of love. Church discipline exists because love exists here. Let it always be with that heart. Now, you might be asking at this point, why go to all the trouble? This sounds like a lot of trouble, doesn't it? Why can't we just mind our own business? We're New Englanders. Just live and let live. You know, if they got a problem, let them deal with it. I'll deal with my problems. Well, here's the thing, brothers and sisters. Jesus cares for us. He loved us enough to give His own life on the cross. And what did He accomplish on the cross at Calvary? He gave us a payment for sin, complete forgiveness for those sins, reconciliation with God, eternal life to come, hope for the future, freedom from judgment, peace with God, union with Christ, union with other believers, godliness, sanctification, victory over certain sins. All of this has been offered to us freely in Christ. And yet, there are those who don't experience those blessings because their sins are eating them alive. But the Lord promises not to lose any of His sheep. They will not perish. The Lord Jesus Christ is on a rescue mission. And He will not stop until we are reconciled and restored back to Him. He is out to save sinners, even those who are believing sinners, 
from their sins. And so he uses us as ministers of gospel promises. When you go to a brother or sister in sin, you minister the gospel to them. You don't just say you're in sin, you've got to repent, and there's just, you hope you do. You minister the gospel. You say, you're in sin, and it's terrible, and I'm worried for your soul, and I'm worried for your life, I'm worried for your family, but guess what? There's hope for you. Didn't Jesus die for your sins? Didn't he die to forgive you and free you? I'm asking you to walk in that freedom and that forgiveness. There's hope for you. I'm here for for positive gospel promises here. And so when you go and expose their sin, you give them the message of promise and forgiveness and peace and hope. You tell the brother or sister, if you repent, God will forgive you. And he'll restore you back to wholeness. There's hope on the horizon. We are not those who traffic in despair. The church isn't a place for despair. It's a place of conviction. It's a place where we're exposed, where the Spirit of God uses the Word and cuts us down to the core and exposes our sins. Yes. But this is a place where sinners get to be healed. This is a hospital. This is a place where people are rescued and redeemed, and they're given hope of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, believe that. Walk in that. What if you're not sure? What if you don't even know if you trusted in Jesus Christ? We're talking about all this forgiveness and repentance and restoration and hope. I don't even know if I'm saved. What do I do? You believe the gospel. And what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news message that even though, yes, we have sinned against God, We have said things in our life that have destroyed people. We've sinned against God in our words, our thoughts, our actions, our deeds, our lifestyle. We've tried to live our lives without God and just thumbed our nose at Him. We've done what is right in our own eyes. We've rebelled against heaven, against God's holiness. We've sinned and transgressed against Him. But yet, despite all of that, God in His perfect love sent Jesus Christ Jesus is God in human flesh. The God-man, the perfect God-man who came to earth, lived on earth for 33 years, walked around and lived just like we do in every single possible way except for sin. He never once sinned against anybody and certainly not against the Father. He lived on earth righteous and then He gave up His life and died on the cross. And as He was on the cross bleeding and suffering and dying, He paid the penalty for sin. Now God's cosmic justice is satisfied and our sins are removed. The burden is lifted and we no longer owe God anything by way of forgiveness or restoration. He has forgiven sins in Christ. And then Jesus went into the ground and when He rose again the third day, He rose again to bring us life and forgiveness and a path to heaven through Him. And so the Bible says that all who would turn from their sins and say, I reject my sin, Lord. I hate my sin. I'm sorry. I trust in you to save me. The Bible says that God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Jesus Christ saves sinners. Sinners of all kinds, all stripes. It does not matter how bad your life has been, how far, how far gone you think you are. 
as long as you're alive, as long as you're able to profess, Lord Jesus, forgive me, there's hope for you. Turn from your sins. Trust in Jesus Christ, and you will have life eternal. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we thank you so much for these verses. Lord, I know that in our humanness, it's very easy for us to look at Matthew 18 and sort of shudder and say, I don't want to deal with that. That seems too hard. It seems too, too difficult, too challenging, too uncomfortable. But Lord, as we've looked into your word today and we've seen that there's life in these verses, that you, you desire to save and rescue lost sheep. And Lord, you could do this all by yourself without anybody's help. You don't need our help. And yet you give us the blessing and the responsibility of joining you in bringing our brothers and sisters back from the edge, back from sinfulness, back from straying. And we, with you, get to rejoice when they are restored. And our love and our joy and our connection to them, our our compassion for them grows. We suddenly get to see who they are in you, and we get to have your heart for them. And so, Lord, I pray, I earnestly pray, as one of many shepherds here, Lord, as an under-shepherd, under the great one, that you would do this work of reconciliation in this body. Lord, I know that there are times that we sin against each other and we hurt each other with our words and we hurt each other with our actions. And I know that there are times that we gossip and slander each other and we tear each other down. And I know that there are times when we look down our nose at other people and we despise them in our hearts and we don't give them grace, and we don't give them forgiveness. We don't overlook their transgressions when we could. God, we are not at all perfect in this regard. And Lord, this hangs like a cloud over us when we don't confront it. And So Lord, I beg you, I plead with you, that you, Spirit of God, would do your work of sanctification in the hearts of your people, And bring this fruit to light. Cause us to walk in your precepts. Cause us to live by your statutes. Cause us to obey Matthew 15, or excuse me, Matthew 18. Cause us, Lord, to pursue reconciliation lovingly. Help us not to tear each other down, but to be restored. And Lord, there's nothing worse than to hinder unity because of our own stubbornness. And so, Lord, I plead with you, I beg you, release us from the burdens that we carry of being angry at other people. Release us from the bitterness and the need for our own personal justice, revenge. Release us. Free us from that, Lord. Help us to see others in the most loving and compassionate light as brothers and sisters that we love and cherish. Help us to see each other the way that you do. Help us to have your heart for each other. Help us to look compassionately when we see another person who's struggling. Because that person is your little one. 
your child that you gave your life, that you gave your own blood on the cross for. Help us not to hate them, to tear them down, to destroy them, but to love them enough to be honest and gentle with them, to see their best, to see them restored. Lord, help us to obey you and to love one another as God in Christ Jesus has loved us. Give us, Lord, what we need. I pray all this on behalf of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.